turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We are in a series going through the book of Acts. We've called this series Multiply. Acts chapter 13. We'll read verses 13 through 43. In the Bible, the church, when it gathers corporately, it is told these are the primary elements of worship. These are the things that we are commanded to do. Number one, we're commanded to sing the word. And hasn't our worship team led us uh, wonderfully this morning? Um, and so it's okay to clap. It's okay. It's okay to encourage them in what they've done to give glory to God and set the atmosphere for worship. So we're told to sing the word. We're also told to pray the word. We're told to preach the word. And that's what I'm about to do right now. But we're also told to read the word. Paul told Timothy to, to give yourselves to the public reading of scripture. And so this has to be an important part of our worship service. And so we're going to read together. And guess what? On this morning, we're going to read all 31 verses of the sermon text this morning. And I plan to preach every last one of them, so get comfortable. <laughs> Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 13, we'll have it on the scripture on the screen for you as well for you to follow along. And then we also have Bible somewhere uh, back on near the hospitality table if you need a physical copy of God's Word. Listen, y'all look good this morning. I just want you to know you look good. Y'all, it must be a special day today. Y'all look good. Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse number 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, Listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God 
has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, just as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Point number two, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him no understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found in him no guilt worthy of death. And they asked Pilate to save, to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Woo! But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news. There's a sermon title for you if you want it. We bring you good news this morning. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him for the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. The verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God and his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, he's on point number three now. Brothers, that through, verse 38, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware. Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Verse 42, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them next Sunday, the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I said earlier, we are now in the book of Acts, and we've been following what God has been doing through Jesus Christ and through the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul and his companions, they've traveled west, northwest of Jerusalem, and now they start to go north from there. And we're open with the story when Paul and Barnabas originally left the church in Antioch, which serves as a model for every New Testament church today, they took with them a fellow by the name of John Mark. And it is said that John Mark was their assistant. He went there to assist them. And needing his assistance, he was a vital part of the team. And the text today opens by saying in verse number 13, and John left them. Now, we're not sure why John left them. Maybe, maybe he just got homesick. And he says, I got to get back to Jerusalem. Maybe he couldn't handle the vigor of the travel that this mission required. Maybe he couldn't get with this whole thing of Jew and Gentile being one now in Christ. So he went back to somewhere where he was very comfortable. Maybe John Mark just said, this is too much for me. We don't know why John Mark left and went back to Jerusalem, but we do know he left them. They were working hard at proclaiming the gospel. He was a vital part of the team, the text says, but he left them. And here's what Luke's commentary is about Paul and Barnabas. Even though John left them and returned to Jerusalem, verse 14 says, but they went on. Oh, that's a word for somebody even on this Easter Sunday morning. This is for free, by the way. That there will be dropouts in your life. There will be people that you thought were your ride or die. There will be people that would say they'll be with you through thick and thin. There will be people who may leave you. But the good news is Paul and Barnabas give us the example that we must go on. If they were here today, they would say they persisted. Yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, they persisted. Yeah. So now they go on and now they go to a different Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia. And then as will be, as you will see their custom is, Paul and Barnabas, they find the synagogue. They say, where are the religious people? Where are, where's the, the local gathering spaces? Let us go there. And then they are asked, while they are in the synagogue, they say, will you give us a word of encouragement? And I can just see Paul now stand up, do the nay-nay, and say, I got you. <laughs> the text says he motioned with his hand. Yes, he did. And he opens up 
his sermon. And that's all, all I'm going to do is preach Paul's sermon this morning because it's a good Easter sermon. Paul opens up. He says the first thing, my first point to you guys this morning is that Jesus, he's the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. Our structural clues in the text to know where our, uh, what's the structure of the sermon is, every time he gets ready to, 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 to begin his next point, he starts with something by like saying men or brothers or Abraham or men of Israel. He addresses them and then he says what he has to say. And so he opens up his, with verse 17, and all he does in the first part of his sermon is focuses on God. I'm in the text. Look at the subject of the verbs in the text. In this first section, the subject is always God. In verse 17, God chose. God made. God led. In verse 18, God put up with them. In verse 19, he gave. Verse 20, he gave. Verse 21, he gave. Verse 22, he raised up. God is the focus of the story. When we survey the gospel story, friends, we have to come to face-to-face with the realization that God is the author and main character of the story. The gospel, my friends, is God's story. History, I know it's cliche, but history is really his story. The Easter story is still God's story. Friends, the problem with us is that we've made God's story about us. We want to be the main character of his story. We want the story to be all about us. And we just want God to play the supporting role of our story. And friends, somebody in here today, that's why you are so confused, so discontent, so frustrated with your life. is because you're living life as if you're the center of history. Friends, I suggest to you that the only way for you to find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment is to realize that you're only a small part of God's story. God has to become the author and main character of your life. So Paul begins this sermon by reviewing salvation history. He reminds this Jewish audience in the synagogue, he says that God graciously chose their forefathers. This will be a good sermon-based uh, discussion this week. Election. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He said, God elected your fathers. He, he chose them. By the way, the reason he chose them is not because there was anything special about them. It's not because they deserved to be chosen. It wasn't because they earned the right to be chosen. It was all of God's grace. You missed a good spot to do something right there because everybody who is a child of God, they've been chosen, not because of how good you could be, not because of how good you are, but only because it was God's sovereign grace. Baby, you are here today because it's the grace of God. He says, God chose him. He's just telling the story. He said, not only did he uh, choose them, but also God made them great in Egypt. 
a place where they were slaves and they, they were oppressed. But God multiplied them nevertheless. And then God did something like this. He redeemed them and brought them out of the land of slavery. And then he says, God, for 40 years, God, God is still the focal point. God was with them even in the wilderness. And why 40 years? Because of their own disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. I think Paul is implicitly uh, pointing out here that even when the people of God are unfaithful, God remains faithful. God led them in the wilderness. He provided for them in the wilderness. He protected them in the wilderness. And then God finally led them to the land of Canaan as their inheritance. Then after that, they were led by judges, Samuel the prophet. And then the Jewish people, they asked for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. And so God gave them old crazy Saul. God, then when King Saul was no longer fit for office, God raised up a man by the name of David. And here's God's commentary on David. He says, I have found in him, in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do all my will. Friends, this is still free stuff. This is what God is still looking for today. He's looking for men, women, boys, and girls whose heart is to do all of his will. Some of you came here today struggling because you have it reversed. Truth be told, you want God to do your will. You want him to make your dreams and desires come to fruition. And then, if he doesn't do it, you start to doubt his very existence and his goodness. You start to think he's not for you because he won't do your will. But friends, that's not how this thing works. God is not your servant. He's your creator, and you were created, watch this, for him to do his will. You, my friends, are God's servant. And we must learn to pray every day. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Friends, that is the prayer that Jesus prayed while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sweat like, like drops of blood were coming down because he knew that his destiny was the cross. Even in the midst of the worst time of his life, his prayer was, Lord, not my will. Yes, and that's what God is looking for. He's looking for some radical disciples, radical followers of Christ who have fully surrendered and said, not my will, but your will. And watch this, and then you learn to be content. In his will, whatever it may be. And then verse 23, this is where Paul was trying to get to the whole time. He said all that to say, verse 23, this is the culmination of his first point. Of this man, that's David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus 
just as he promised. Paul's whole point in this sermon to this synagogue con congregation is that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Jesus is the deliverer, the rescuer. Now, we are introduced to the climax of God's story. What's the climax of God's story? Jesus. He is the focal point of God's story. And friends, if you are here today, hear me well. Jesus needs to be the climax of your story. The last three words of verse 23 are crucial. The text says Jesus is the Savior. Watch this. As he promised. What, what promise is Paul referring to here? He has to be referring to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7 is where we find what we call the Davidic covenant. It is the binding agreement, the promise that God made to David. Before that, David said, Lord, I'm going to build you a temple. And God said, oh, no, you're not. You're a man of war. You got blood on your hands. You're not going to build me a temple. But this is what I'll do for you, David. He says, I, I, I'm going to raise up for you offspring that will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever. I don't have time to work through all that, so let me just give you the, the, the answer to the test right there. That offspring that God prophesied about to David, that God promised to David, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This offspring of David to a Jew Jewish audience, their ears would have perked up because this promised Messiah, this promised anointed one that would save uh, uh, Israel and restore Israel, it was their hope. And Paul says, he's come. He is the Savior. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Friends, in Jesus, all the promises of God are yea and amen. Friends, Jesus is the living proof that God keeps his word. Jesus is living proof that God's word can be trusted. So then, the question is, what is the appropriate response to this man named Jesus? Look at verse 24. Before his coming, John, the Baptist that is, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Two key words in the text. What's the appropriate response? First, repent. The appropriate response to Jesus Christ is to change your mind about who he is and what he's done for you on the cross and surrender to him completely by faith. Turn from whatever you are trusting in for salvation and turn to Christ. Repentance is the appropriate response. Second key word in the text is, I love this three-letter word, all. All. He proclaimed the baptism of repentance to 
all the people of Israel. Repentance was for all the people of Israel. There was not one person in the land who did not need to repent. Why did all need to repent? Because all had sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And friends, even today, we need to repent because we are all sinners who stand condemned before a most holy God. The good news is that God has dealt with our sin through Jesus Christ. So then, Paul says, that's my first point. Here's my second. And Aubrey beat me to it. She is enjoying this sermon. <laughs> she couldn't wait to get to the second point. He says, my second point is Jesus. Not only is he the promised Savior, but he's the prophesied Savior. Look at verse 26. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So what does Paul now proceed to do? He begins to share the message of this salvation. Friends, this is what we call the gospel. So Paul says, let me give you the gospel. He says, and now I've got three sub-points to my second point. He says the first part of this message of salvation, the first part of the gospel is the death of Christ. Look at verse 27. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they even fulfill them by condemning him. And even though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Friends, this text, this part of the text helps us to understand how deeply stained within man is in regards to sin. Look what the text says. That those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, here's the commentary, they did not recognize him. They, they were ignorant of him. Their, their hearts were hardened toward Christ. They didn't even realize that the prophecies that, that of the Old Testament were being fulfilled before their very eyes. In other words, they were blinded to the identity of this man named Jesus. And friends, this is the state of every person unless God intervenes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This sinful, perverted, evil heart led them to the greatest injustice ever. Sinful man killed his own savior. The, the, the creature killed his creator. The guilty killed the innocent. Jesus was executed by being hung on the cross. The worst form of execution. In America, we would call the cross cruel and unusual punishment. In America, the cross would be unconstitutional. 
friends, that's how much your sin costs God. Jesus died for your sin. And that's Paul's point. He says the first part of the gospel is Jesus had to die. By the way, not for his own sin because he was innocent. They put him, they took him from kangaroo court to kangaroo court. And guess what? With all the trumped up charges, guess what? They still couldn't find no guilt in him. But yet they killed him. That's the greatest injustice ever. Paul says, now let me give you the second part of the gospel. He died in the first part. The second part is he was buried. Verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul mentions this tree. Why does he bring up this tree? This Jewish audience would have immediately thought of Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse, excuse me, chapter 21 verse 23, which says, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. And Paul is teaching them implicitly that Christ became a curse so you didn't have to receive the curse by hanging on the tree. But then they took him down from that tree, the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. Friends, the fact that they laid him in the tomb proves that he actually died. He didn't go into a coma. He didn't just lose consciousness. He died. How do we know that? Because they laid him in a tomb. You only put dead folks in tombs. Friends, he had to die. Without death, if he wouldn't have died, there could be no forgiveness of sins. I didn't make that up. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, death, there can be no remission of sins. So Paul says, here, I've given you the first part, the death of Christ. I've given you the second part, the burial of Christ. But there's a third part. Verse 30, verse 30, but God, (laughs) verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Friends, the two of my favorite words in the Bible are but God. Listen, before I even get to this part of the gospel, let me just stop and shout for a moment because I'm looking at some but God people right now. You should have been dead right now, but God. I'm looking at some folks right now who were diagnosed with stage four cancer, but God. I'm looking at some folks who were addicted to drugs and alcohol, but God. I'm looking at some folks here. After everything you've been through, you should have lost your mind by now. But God should have lost your marriage. But God should have lost your children. But God was sick. But God. But God. Notice that the first part of this is about what man did to Jesus. Now Paul says, let me get back to the primary subject, God. Man killed him, but God uh, raised him up on the third day. Friends, 
The good news of Easter is our Savior lives. He's not dead. Death could not hold him down. He's alive. Easter is, is the proof that death has been put to death. On Easter, we actually celebrate the funeral of death in Jesus Christ. He, look at the power of God. He says he raised him from the dead. Look at the power of God. He, he, God gives life to dead men. That's the good news of Easter, friends. All of us were dead. Paul says, Ephesians 2, all of you are dead in trespasses and sins. Without Jesus Christ, we are all dead men walking. But God, he, 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 he gave us faith to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Then the Holy Spirit came with us, and what was dead now became a new life in Jesus Christ. And the good news for somebody here today is that God still gives life to dead men. But God raised him from the dead. But I hear that skeptic out there. I hear you. I hear you. You're saying, how do we know God actually raised him from the dead. Well, verse 30 says he appeared. The fact that he appeared to some men means that the tomb is empty. How do you explain the empty tomb? The empty tomb, friends, is evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. Watch this. Even pagans will tell you that the tomb was empty. The Roman guards, they went in there and they said, he's not there. They didn't want to go tell their boss because they knew they'd be put to death. Even the Roman guards said the tomb was empty. All right, you're saying, give me more proof, Brandon. Well, I just told you, he, he appeared. He, he, in, in, in human flesh, he went and talked to his disciples. That wasn't a ghost. It was Jesus himself. Matter of fact, if he, he, he said he showed them. He showed them. I, I hear doubting Thomas. Disbelieving Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see him. And then and Jesus says, look at my nail-scarred hand. I hear you. You're saying, okay, okay, there's an empty tomb. Okay, he showed up. I need one more piece of evidence because it's, you know, you got to have a third point, right? <laughs> Paul says, and now there are witnesses. The one thing that will always do you in is eyewitness testimony. And Paul says, now, Jesus Christ himself has witnesses. They saw this risen Savior. He's alive. He's alive. So then, all of this evidence, my friends, points to the reality of the resurrection. So Paul says, I've given you this good information in my first two points. He says, now I've got to give you some application. Thirdly, he says, not only is Jesus the promised Savior, not only is Jesus the prophesied Savior, Jesus is the pardon for sinners. 
Paul ends his sermon by giving the application of Christ's work on the cross and the application for our lives. Verse 38, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through the work of Christ on the cross and him being raised from the dead, forgiveness of sin has been made available. Friend, your sin debt has been paid in full. You can live a debt-free life to God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Every sin has been forgiven. Watch this. Your public sins and your private sins. Your overt sins and your secret sins. Friends, the full catalog of your sins has been cast into a sea of forgetfulness because you are forgiven. Sinner, your penalty has been paid in full. You are a sinner, and what every sinner needs today is forgiveness. As broke as you showed up to church, that's not your greatest need today. As unhealthy as you may be, that's not your greatest need. As frustrated and discontent as you may be, that is not your greatest need. Your greatest need, my friend, is to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus Christ has made available to you, is forgiveness. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't not sin enough. You can't not be good enough. You can't perform enough religious acts enough to be forgiven. It's all through Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, see, y'all thought this was just a purely evangelistic sermon this morning, but I can, I've got something for you who have already been forgiven. There's good news for those of us who have already been saved. Friends, if there's a reason for you to wake up every day and give God praise, it's because you've been forgiven. If there's a reason for you to get out of the bed to be at church by 9.30 in the morning on the east side of town, it's because you've been forgiven. If there's a reason to have joy in the midst of all the chaos in your life, it's because you've been forgiven. If there's a reason for you not to commit suicide, it's because you've been forgiven. If there's a reason for you to not despair and lose hope, it's because you have been forgiven. And I just wonder if there's any forgiven people in the house this morning. Verse 39. Verse 39, Paul says, and there's more. Not only is there forgiveness, but there's also freedom. He says in verse 39, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul makes it clear that the appropriate response to the gospel is belief. That's all. That's the application of his sermon. Believe, friend. Trust, friend. Have faith. That's it. What Paul a lot of times we can learn a lot about what something does not say. Here's what Paul makes it clear. Rule keeping won't make you right with God. Rituals won't make you right with God. Religion won't make you right with God. 
If those things could make a person righteous, then we could have just stopped with the law of Moses. But because Jesus had to come and realizes that the only way for us to be right with God is through faith and faith alone. Friends, that's why Jesus came, lived, died, and was buried and rose on the third day so that we could be right with our creator. He says, the gospel not only comes with forgiveness, not only comes with freedom, but there's a forewarning in the gospel too. Look at verse 40. He says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish. Die. He says, if I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Friends, Paul's simple point here is don't be a scoffer, a mocker. Don't be one who despises the gospel. Don't be a person of unbelief. If you don't believe, my Lord, friend, you will die in your sin and be guilty of every one of your sins and receive the just punishment for your sins. Matter of fact, I said the just punishment. People wonder how a loving God could send people to hell. God can, he couldn't be loving and send people to hell. Well, that's because you have an incomplete view of God, my friend. God is not just love. God is also holy and just. It is just. It is justice for God to send criminals to hell. It is just for God to, to give the due penalty to guilty men. That's just. In order for God to be holy, he has to deal with sin. For God to be just, he has to deal with sin. But the good news is that the justice of God, you don't have to fear it if you will just simply trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. I'm done. Worship team, head this way. If you don't believe, you will die in your sins. It's not by chance that you showed up today to hear this message. God, by his providence, has led you here today to hear this message of salvation. So believe.